Well, take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 1 for this message entitled, Bring Them to Jesus. John chapter 1, while you're turning there, I need to correct something that I said in last week's message. Many of you may have caught it. Remember that last week we heard from John the witness who was proclaiming the testimony of Jesus as the Messiah. And one of the testimonies that he gave is that Jesus existed before him, even though Jesus was born after him. And as I was explaining that point, I made a comment along the lines that Jesus was three months younger than John. And again, most of you probably caught it, but uh, I was mixed up in my head in that moment, and I wanted to clarify that. Luke 1 tells us, we even heard part of it today, that when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he told her, among other things, that Elizabeth was in her sixth month. That's right. And, uh, and then Mary went to visit with Elizabeth for how long? Three months. You can see where I got confused there. And then Mary left right before uh, John the Baptist was born. Uh, he was himself baptized at that moment. Not, well, never mind. Um, he, uh, so Jesus is six months younger than John. It seems as though by the time that Mary arrived at Elizabeth's home, the way that John responded in Elizabeth's womb would indicate that Jesus was already in Mary's womb which is why we would say it's basically six months difference between the two of them. Well, that's a rather insignificant uh, error on my part, but I I wanted to say that uh, just to remind you of a couple of things that you already know. First, uh, the Bible is inerrant, but I am not. And I know you know that. I just want you to know that I know that. From time to time, Rachel tells me on a Sunday afternoon of something that I said that you know, wasn't right, and I realize, oh man, what I had in my mo- notes and what I had in my mind is not what came out of my mouth, and that's always a, you know, a moment of frustration for me personally. But there are other times when I get something wrong, where I overlook something, and in fact, last week I had a first. I was driving to church Sunday morning, thinking about the message, and the Lord brought to my mind a couple of scriptures that contradicted something that I had planned to say in the sermon, so I had to rewrite that portion of the sermon rather quickly. But I just want you to know that I'm growing along with you, right? We're, we're all in this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the second thing I want to say related to that is uh, you must always be comparing what anybody says from the pulpit, from a class with scripture. Uh, you are responsible before the Lord to not just receive as Everything that you hear as if it's uh, the absolute truth. You need to be looking to the scripture. You need to be thinking about what God's word says that you already know and comparing what you hear so that you are not in any way led astray. The scripture alone is inerrant and is our authority. Uh, When you have questions about something that you've heard, whether again in the class or from a Sunday, uh, it's such a blessing for you to, to come and raise those questions I'm always encouraged when someone does that because it shows that they're thinking about what is being said and they're wrestling with how the scripture fits together. And and so that's a way that we all grow together and uh, encourage each other and grow in the grace of Christ together. All right, John chapter one, I'm in Luke chapter four, John chapter one. Our text for today is John one verses 35 all the way down to verse 51. 
where the Apostle John describes the first interactions that Jesus had with those who would become his disciples. And I've titled this message, Bring Them to Jesus, because almost every person that Jesus interacts with in this section was brought to him by someone else. And so in addition to what we learn from Jesus and from the individuals who speak here, what we see is an example of personal evangelism. You know, our role in this world is not to argue people into the kingdom. Uh, our role is, uh, or rather our privilege, is to simply bring people to Jesus and let them experience Him in whatever way God desires to reveal Himself to them and allow the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish His purposes in their life. Maybe you're praying about someone that you're going to be interacting with over the next few weeks a co-worker or a family member who doesn't know the Lord. And you're not really sure how you can engage with them in a conversation. Well, perhaps this message, this text will be an encouragement to you. Some of you have in your minds the, the faces and names of those whom the Lord has given you the blessing of, of bringing to Jesus in whatever way that looked, whether you, you brought them to church or you shared the gospel with them or you read scripture with them or you sent them some kind of a, a resource that they read and whatever the case was where you know that the Lord used your influence in their life to bring them to Christ. And that's a great privilege, is it not? And so perhaps, again, the Lord has someone in your mind that, that you will be interacting with. And so may this be an encouragement to you. Well, let's look at the passage before we dive into it. Follow along as I read chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom, the Moses, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, 
Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the Word of God. In this passage, we see four declarations that lead to life-changing encounters with Jesus. Four declarations that lead to life-changing encounters with Jesus. If you're a believer today, it's because you've had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. However the gospel came to you, the Lord met you and opened your eyes to see His glory, and you followed Him, having believed on Him. This is what every sinner needs. They don't need our intellect. They don't need our arguments. They don't need our charisma. They need to have an encounter with Jesus. Now, I need to tell you up front that this passage is like a base camp for many study trails that we could go on and keep us here for weeks. But I'm disciplining myself to just walk through this rather quickly and keep focused uh, for the purpose which, uh, for which the Apostle John wrote these accounts. Four declarations that lead to life-changing encounters with Jesus. Declaration number one. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Look at verses 35 and 36. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. As we noted last week, John in his gospel is not really concerned with giving us an overview or a chronological view of Jesus' life in ministry. In fact, apart from this week or so, eight days approximately, that he gives us in this chapter and into the second chapter, uh, chapters 2 through 12 are really just snippets of Jesus' life in ministry. And then chapters 13 to 19 cover less than 24 hours of Jesus' life. And then chapters 20 and 21 give us a handful of appearances that Jesus had after his resurrection. So John starts by giving us, again, about a week's worth, and his purpose in doing that is to demonstrate that the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ, did not come about as a result of the experience that people had with Jesus, as though they it just dawned on them at some point, oh my goodness, I think this might be the Son of God. But rather, the conclusion was already established from the very beginning. After being baptized by John some two months ago, Jesus has concluded his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, being tempted as well by the devil, and he was there in the southern region of Israel. Now he's regained his strength, and he's on his way back up to the north, to Galilee, which is his home region, and he stops for a couple days to be in the area where John the Baptist is. Why does he do that? so that he can be proclaimed by John, really introduced publicly as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. That happened yesterday, if you will, verses 29 to 34. Now we're told, we're not told, that is, that what Jesus is doing in these couple days, apart from what happened after John's declaration, we, we can imagine that Uh, When John made that announcement, there was some interaction with the people. People came up to him, had questions. 
Whether Jesus taught the people, we don't know. We do know, though, that he didn't perform any miracles, but because in John chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus says that the turning of water into wine was the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus performed. And that happens just a few days from this very moment. So whatever happened between yesterday's announcement by John and today, and the next day when Jesus will eventually make his way up to Galilee, uh, we're not sure. But Jesus stayed overnight and into this day. Evidently, Jesus was walking amongst the people, and it was not yet his intention to leave. And so he, he happened to walk by John in the process. And as it says, John was standing with two of his own disciples. And seeing Jesus again, John says to him, or says to them, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's possible that in that moment, the, uh, John the witness said more than that. And just for the sake of space, John the, the apostle gives us only that particular statement. But whatever the case, John testifies again that Jesus is the Lamb of God. As we learned last time, the Old Testament doesn't refer to the Messiah as the Lamb of God, at least not by that title. But John the witness, who is a prophet, pulled together the different truths from the Old Testament that declare that Jesus, or rather the Messiah, would take upon himself the sin of his people. And in so doing, he would offer himself as the once for all sacrifice, such that those who've had their sins taken away are now declared righteous before God. The wages of sin is death. This is what we have all earned for ourselves in this life. And the only way to escape this condemnation and for God's justice to stand is for God himself to pay the penalty that we deserve. But because God cannot die, as God, he cannot pay the penalty for our sin. God could only take our sin upon himself by becoming a man. And so as the Son of God, Jesus, did not, stop become, or did not stop being God. He was truly God and truly man, one person with two natures. If he were only a perfect man, he could die for the sins of one other person. But being truly God, he could absorb in himself the full wrath of God on behalf of all of those who would believe. And that's exactly what he did. In fact, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 gives us the lyrics of a song that's sung in heaven as a result of what Christ has done. They sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and nation and people and language. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then verse 12 of that chapter gives us verse 2 of the song, which says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now this declaration by, God, uh, by John leads to a life-changing encounter. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Whatever else was going on around Jesus, and you have to, you have to imagine that there was other things, there were other things going on around Jesus. Jesus 
turns around and notices that these two men are following him and he asks that penetrating question there in verse 38. What are you seeking? And we would say, well, isn't it obvious, <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> uh, our former rabbi, our former spiritual leader, John, just told us that you're the Lamb of God. Of course we're going to follow you. Isn't that obvious? Well, like God in the Old Testament, Jesus never asks a question to gain information for himself. He asks questions to draw out the heart of those around him. You know, people follow Jesus for all kinds of reasons. They follow him because they want to get fed. They follow him because they want to be healed. Of course, not at this very moment, but eventually in his ministry. Uh, some follow him because they want their ears tickled. They just enjoy the sound of Jesus' teaching and the things that he says. Others follow him because they want to trap him and find some reason to accuse him. And of course, there's those who follow him because they want to know him. And they want to follow him wherever he goes, no matter the, where he takes them. And so Jesus asked these two men, what are you seeking? Well, let me ask you, what are you seeking? What drew you here today? Why did you get up early, get yourself ready, and come here? Some of you driving 30, even 60 minutes to come here when you could have slept in. Uh, you could have gone shopping. You could have enjoyed a leisurely brunch or got projects done around the house. What, what are you Seeking, what are you hoping to get out of this time at Hope Bible Church? Well, here's what they say at the end of verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? What kind of an answer is that? <laughs> the word rabbi is uh, obviously it means teacher. Decades later, it becomes really a title for those who are formally ordained among the Jews. But at this time, it was used simply as a term of respect for spiritual leaders. John himself will be called rabbi in chapter 3. And so they're, they're showing respect to him. But they say, where are you staying? What kind of an answer is that? I'll give, tell you what kind of an answer that is. It's the kind of answer that, that a person gives when they tense up and they don't know what to say. There's really nothing spiritual about their response. They, they barely know anything about Jesus. Their understanding about the coming Messiah is probably skewed by the cultural expectations. They really haven't had time to think about the long-term implications of what it means to follow Jesus as the Messiah. So what are they supposed to say? perhaps embarrassed that they didn't have a good answer to give, they, they say what just comes first to their mind. Uh, where are we going? <laughs> well, this is the first of many foolish responses to the answers or to the questions that Jesus gives over the next three years by his disciples. And it shows that they really didn't know yet who Jesus really was and what he truly came to do. And it's here that we see the patience of Jesus. Look at how he responds in verse 39. 
he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Jesus doesn't rebuff them for their inane answer. He draws them closer. Beloved, don't ever think that Jesus will push you away because you don't know the right thing to say. You can say the most ridiculous, the most off-the-wall, even theologically incorrect thing to Jesus. And his heart, his response is to draw you closer so that you can come to know him more. If you don't know why you're here this morning, if you're here because of the force of habit, you're here because of family pressure, or for some other reason that you know is not truly a sincere desire to worship Christ, I'm glad that you're here. I'd rather you be here versus not here because if you're here, you can learn more about Christ. And perhaps your desire for Him will grow and your motivations for coming here will change to what it should be over time. Jesus is patient with you and with me. Our motivations in all of life as we seek to to live for Christ and do what's right are, are always mixed, but He doesn't reject us on the basis that we might have mixed motivations. No, He desires to draw us in so we can get to know Him more. That's what Jesus does with these two disciples. Now you notice there at the end of verse 39 that he says there it was about the 10th hour. The word four is not in the Greek. It's just a a basic statement of time that John makes. And Jews started their day at sunrise. And so the 10th hour would be about 4 p.m., which of course is toward the end of the day, getting toward dark. And because of that, some would say that what happens next, verses 40 to 42, what happens on the next day, But it's entirely possible that the way that Andrew responds happens this very same day. So whether they had access to Jesus themselves all of the rest of that day and into the next uh, just by themselves, or whether Andrew left at some point to find Peter, we don't know. But whatever happened, we know that they had an encounter with Jesus. They had conversation with Jesus that led them to believe not just what John said about Jesus, but they came to that same conviction themselves. You see, what always happens when you have an encounter, a true encounter with Jesus, is that He he first stirs your your heart and, and then He motivates your will. And then that motivation moves out into your body and you can't help but tell others about Jesus. And you say, well, that's not how I feel. I don't have that motivation. I don't have that manifestation of going out and telling others about Jesus. And I would say to you, that's not a sign that you've not had an encounter with Jesus. That's a sign that you need to get to know Jesus more. Because the more that we know the glory and the majesty and the wonder of who Jesus is, the more that we want to tell other people about him. the more that Jesus changes us. The more that we understand that He's forgiven us, the more we want others to experience that 
from him as well. Well, that's declaration number one. Jesus is the Lamb of God. That brings us to our second declaration that leads to a life-changing encounter, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verses 40 and 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. This, by the way, is just one of two times that the word Messiah appears as, as the word itself in Aramaic uh, in the New Testament. The fact that we only learn of one of those disciples' names, Andrew, is an indication that possibly the other one was John the Apostle himself. Uh, we know that throughout the gospel, John takes great pains not to name or identify himself uh, at all. And so it's possible that the other disciple of John the Baptist was who we know as John the Apostle. But whatever the case, the focus here clearly is on Andrew. And did you notice that Andrew is identified as Simon Peter's brother, which would indicate that the first readers of, of the Gospel of John would have known who Peter is, Simon Peter is, because that's how he's identified even before he's introduced into the story. It's almost like John the Apostle is giving Simon Peter's origin story uh, in this brief account. Andrew himself is rarely mentioned in the four Gospels. In fact, really every time he's mentioned, it's just in a list of names, even if it's only alongside Peter. The most we learn about Andrew is in the Gospel of John, where he, he occurs several times. And what we learn about Andrew is that he is one who brings people to Jesus. Here in this account, he brings his brother, Simon, to Jesus. And then in chapter 6, he finds this little boy who has a little bit of food and, and he brings him to Jesus. And it's that boy's food that the Lord uses to feed thousands of people. And then in chapter 12, he brings a group of Greeks who are looking for Jesus, wanting to talk to Jesus. And Andrew is the one who escorts them to him. So Andrew here is a model for us. He, he's not a spokesperson for Jesus. He's not the leader of the disciples. He doesn't become that. In fact, he hardly says anything at all in this gospel. But what he does is he brings people to Jesus. Do you realize that the most significant influence you can have in someone's life is to bring them to Jesus? You don't have to know much but you can bring people into a position where they can learn more about Jesus, where they can hear about him and encounter him. And if Jesus chooses to save them as a result of that encounter by his sovereign grace, then you've just been used by the Lord to change someone's life for all eternity. What a privilege that is. I mean, if you don't know how to engage with someone and you want to bring someone to Jesus, but you're just not sure what to say, you can you can say something like this. Hey, would, would you be interested in reading about Jesus? And then over the course of time, you just read through one of the Gospels with them and talk about it. Or you could say something like, hey, our, our pastor is preaching through the Gospel of John, which talks about Jesus and who he is. Would, would you be willing to come with me to church and, and hear about Jesus? And, and then you can take them to lunch afterward and talk about what they heard. Or you can say something like, hey, I, uh, there's this video that I've watched that talks about the man who changed the history of the world. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. 
Uh, would you be willing to listen to it? And then you send them some, some sermon or some message about Jesus. You yourself don't need to be a preacher. You don't need to be an apologist. Like Andrew, you can just be a faithful witness for Christ by inviting people to get to know Jesus. That's what Andrew does here. He, he says to Simon, we have found the Messiah. And notice that he doesn't say, John pointed out the Messiah. He says, we have found the Messiah. Again, apparently within a very short period of time, Andrew followed Jesus with the other disciples based on the testimony of John. But in a short period of time, Andrew himself believed in Jesus. His encounter with Jesus convinced him that, yes, indeed, this, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is the coming deliverer of Israel. We know from the book of Acts that Andrew and Simon were uneducated fishermen. And so their knowledge of the scripture was rather limited, but they knew enough to be looking for the Messiah. And apparently they knew enough to be able to identify the Messiah. Their faith at this point, at least Andrew's faith, was more childlike trust than informed by a deep understanding and knowledge of scripture. But that's all that was needed. When he says, we there, we have found the Messiah, he may be including the other unnamed disciple, which if it is John, would, would make sense because Matthew 4 tells us that Andrew and Peter and James and John were fishermen and they would have known one another. But again, Andrew simply says, we have found the Messiah. There really is no more exciting news than this, especially for a Jew in the first century. Uh, to find the Messiah, to have the man standing in front of you who is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises given by God would be too exhilarating to keep to yourself. It's like when a, a group of people are looking for a lost child in the woods and one of them finds them, that individual who finds them doesn't say, oh, there she is. And then sit down and talk to the child and play a game or whatever. No, what do they say? She's over here. I found her. Come over here. You have to bring people into that exciting news, whether it's a lost child or the found Messiah. He was too excited to keep Jesus to himself. And so he, he finds Peter, it says. He first found his brother Simon. He looked for him and told him, we have found the Messiah. Look then in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And then John translates, which means Peter. Cephas in the Aramaic, Peter in the Greek. When it says here that, that Jesus looked at Simon, uh, the word means more than just an intentional direction of the eyes. One uh, theological dictionary would say the word usually signifies a look of interest, a look of love, a look of concern. In his divine nature, Jesus would have already known who Simon Peter would be, what role he would play in God's plan of redemption. And so perhaps as he gazed at Simon, the, that reality of all of who Peter would become flashed before his eyes. And in his divine foresight and authority, Jesus says, you are Simon, the son of John, which is acknowledging who he is in his human 
relationships, his birth name, his family relationships. But then he says, you shall be called Cephas. And we know that names today carry somewhat less significance than they did in the first century. But even we understand that changing someone's name in, to some degree changes their identity. This change of name not only changes Peter's identity or will, but it changes the role that he will play, or rather it identifies the role that he will play in God's plan of redemption. Notice how the verb tenses are, you are Simon, versus you shall be called Cephas or Peter. The Gospels don't make it clear to us when that transition of name change occurred, whether they started calling him Peter or Cephas right away, or whether that remained later. In fact, the way those two names are used, it seems like whenever Peter is living in the flesh and saying something really foolish, they call him Simon. <laughs> and whenever he's doing something that's, that's wonderful and, and praiseworthy and honoring the Lord, they call him Peter. So what that actually looked like in, in terms of name change, we don't know. But what Jesus is saying is that the time would come when he would be known as Peter. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus is asking the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And Peter comes out with his declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to Peter by saying, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The name Cephas or the name Peter in Greek was not a typical name as it is today. It really was uh, more just a, a noun. And so Jesus turns it into a name, making it his nickname. And it's the word that means rock or stone. And while it's true, as we see in the Gospels, that Peter was stubborn and hard-headed, that's not what Jesus was talking about. Simon would become Peter, and he would be a pillar of the church and it was his proclamation of the gospel, especially in Acts chapter 2, which would be the rock-solid foundation on which the church would be built. And so his stubbornness would be sanctified by the Lord and used to proclaim the gospel, and he would make him an unrelenting preacher for Christ. So parents, if you have a hard-headed, stubborn-willed child, just pray that God saves them and sanctifies that stubbornness so that it's used for Christ and his kingdom. Of course, to say that Peter would be a rock is not to say that he would never falter and fail. There would be occasions when he would not be a rock, such as his threefold denial of Christ, which we'll read about later in this book. Or in Galatians, we learn about a time when he was afraid of the Jews who were coming from Jerusalem and he brought confusion to the reality of the gospel and the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. But those occasions did, did not define his life. He was more defined by his boldness than his moments of weakness. And so he became known as Peter the Rock. Now, when Jesus says this to Simon, Simon, of course, has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He has no idea what's actually going to take place in the future. But this encounter with Jesus draws Simon in. And for the next three years, Simon Peter becomes the closest companion to Jesus of all the disciples. He becomes his most vocal follower and the most influential apostle among the Jews. 
Andrew declared to his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. And then he brought him to Jesus. And in this way, Andrew had a role in changing the trajectory of Peter's life forever. That brings us to our third declaration. Declaration number three. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verses 43 to 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The fact that Jesus can go in one day from the Jordan River up to Bethsaida, which is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, indicates that John's ministry was taking place on the northern end of the Jordan River. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, and a typical travel day for a Jew, of course, walking would be at most 20 miles if you're walking with a purpose. And it says here that Bethsaida was the city of Andrew and Peter, which is more likely their hometown where they grew up, because we learn in Matthew chapter 8 that Peter's home was actually in Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. But notice how it says there in verse 40, 40 uh, sorry, verse 43, he found Philip. This would imply what? That Jesus is looking for Philip. Why is he looking for Philip? How does he know Philip? We don't know. But we know that Jesus, again, in his divine omniscience, knew Philip. And so in the same way that Andrew found Simon in verse 41, and that Philip will find Nathaniel in verse 45, Jesus finds Philip. And in finding him, he says, follow me. Now, obviously here, the Apostle John gives us no information about what else did Jesus say. It's rather unlikely that Philip would hear the words, follow me from a random stranger and just get up and follow him. And so it's likely that there was more interaction between the two of them. It's also possible that Philip knew uh, the men who are, who were already following Jesus and that helped him have confidence to follow him. But we don't know anything about that interaction because John wants to focus our attention on Philip's declaration after finding Nathaniel and the life-changing interaction that that led to in Nathaniel's life. So whatever happened, Philip had his own life-changing encounter with Jesus. And again, Philip can't keep that to himself. And so he goes off and he finds Nathaniel. Now notice again in verse 45 how Philip says, we have found him, first person, plural. Since Philip is from Andrew and Peter's hometown, it's possible that he knew these two men. But whatever the case, he speaks with the same excitement that Andrew does, and he declares, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Why didn't Philip simply say, we found the Messiah, like Andrew had said to Peter? Well, it seems as though Nathaniel had a rather strong grasp of Scripture, and Philip knew that Nathaniel would want more specific information. Nathaniel's more robust understanding is shown in both what he says to Jesus and how Jesus responds to him. 
They speak to each other with biblical language that might have gone over the heads of men like Andrew and Peter. But before we see that, look at verse 46. Nathanael says to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Nazareth was a small town in Galilee, and Cana was an even smaller town north of Nazareth. Uh, uh, Nathaniel is from Cana, and uh, Nazareth itself has no prophetic role in Scripture, no prophetic importance. And so, and you can also hear that disdain in Nathaniel's words, which indicates some attitude driven by either personal or stereotypical view of the city. In fact, since Nathaniel is from Cana, and Jesus and his mother, as we'll see in chapter two, went to a wedding. In Cana, it's even possible that Nathaniel knew Jesus and his family. This may be why Philip identifies Jesus as Jesus, the son of Joseph. By the way, the fact that Philip even knows that Jesus is the son of Joseph indicates that there was an interaction, there was enough interaction that Philip knew more about Jesus than John the Baptist had declared publicly. Whatever was behind Nathaniel's contempt for Nazareth, Philip challenged him, come and see. So they come to Jesus, and as with Simon, Jesus makes an insightful statement about Nathaniel. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now it's clear that Jesus and Nathanael have never met, but again, in his divine knowledge, Jesus can speak to Nathanael's character, that he's the kind of man who speaks honestly and speaks what's on his mind. This language that Jesus uses calls to mind Jacob, the son of Abraham, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob was a deceiver and a manipulator, but when the Lord humbled him, when he was making his way back to the land of Canaan, and he was about to meet his brother Esau, the Lord changed his name to Israel. So Nathaniel represents the transformed character of Israel. He's not a deceiver. He is a truth speaker. And the reality is there's only three ways Jesus could have known this about Nathaniel. Either he knew Nathaniel personally, or someone had told Jesus about Nathaniel, or Jesus is God and he knows Nathaniel without having to have met him or being told about him. Well, Nathaniel knew that it wasn't the first. They d didn't know each other. They'd never met, but he wasn't sure about the alternatives. So he asks in verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, at first, this seems like an odd answer. How does Nathaniel being under the fig tree, being seen by Jesus, reflect or explain how Jesus knew his character? But then you think about what Philip says, or rather what Jesus says, and notice that he says, before Philip called you. In other words, Jesus seeing Nathaniel happened prior to Philip finding Nathaniel. 
Which means that there would have been no way for Jesus, if he was only human, to know anything about Nathanael. Now, we can't read too much into the word seeing here that Jesus saw him. But it does mean more than just a basic observation as though he scanned the crowd and happened to notice Nathanael in the crowd. No, Jesus took note of him. He observed him. That's what Jesus is communicating. And then also notice that it says that Nathanael was under the fig tree when Jesus saw him. For many years, I assumed that Nathanael was in the line of sight of Jesus when Philip found him and invited him to come and talk to Jesus. And that even the conversation that Philip and Nathanael had might have taken place in the hearing of Jesus. But in truth, Jesus did not have eyes on Nathanael until he came to him. Remember that in verse 45, it says that Philip found Nathanael, which means that he had to go and find him. And then he said to Philip, come and see, which means that they had to make their way back to wherever Jesus was. So Nathanael knows that until he came up to Jesus, Jesus had never laid eyes on him. Jesus' answer to Nathanael then means this. Nathanael, the reason that I know you is because I am omniscient. I don't have to have met you to know you. I already knew you. I can see you even when we're not in the same place. That's what Jesus is communicating to Nathanael. Well, Nathanael knew exactly what Jesus meant by that, which explains why he responds the way he does in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is our fourth declaration. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the... My mind is going blank for a second. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And here, He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. And Jesus is the promised King who would reign forever on the throne of David over Israel. That is what Nathanael is saying. This very brief encounter between Jesus and Nathanael convinced Nathanael that Jesus is indeed the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And because he knows exactly what the prophets have said, he declares that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. He knows, by the way, that Jesus is the anointed one of whom the Lord says in Psalm 2, you are my beloved Son. He is the Son of God. Nathaniel knows that Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. That is to say that Jesus will rule and will reign. Nathaniel knew that the Messiah would be the, the son of David who would reign on his throne forever. And that therefore Jesus is the king of Israel. Nathanael declares Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. And Jesus responds to this remarkable act of faith in verses 50 and 51. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel's bold declaration in response to Jesus' simple statement is met with a, a promise of even greater experiences of divine revelation. That's what Jesus means to say here. It's, it's a bit cryptic to us, but that's exactly what he means. Jesus is here speaking in a metaphor to Nathaniel, who again knows the scripture very well. The basic element of this metaphor comes from Genesis chapter 28, which uh, is the passage about Jacob being on his way out of the land of Canaan, fleeing from his brother Esau after he had deceived his father, stealing Esau's birthright. Uh, Genesis 28 tells us that Jacob stayed in, in a certain place for the night. And verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 28 says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top reached to heaven. And behold, the, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. This vision of the ladder that went up to heaven with angels ascending and descending conveys to Jacob that God is active in the world, accomplishing his purposes and revealing himself to Jacob. This is a sign to Jacob that the Lord has not abandoned him, that he is accomplishing his purposes in the world. And that includes promises specifically to Jacob and his descendants. So Jesus takes that vision and he modifies it. Note how here in verse 51, he says, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man replaces the ladder in Jacob's vision, which was set on the earth. So here there's, there's no ladder and there's no Lord standing over the ladder. There is only the Son of Man who is Jesus. So what is Jesus saying? He is the one through whom God is active in the world. He is the source of divine revelation. And through him, through Jesus, Nathaniel would hear and witness God's work and God's words. But not just Nathaniel. One of the greatest deficiencies in the English language is the lack of a second person plural pronoun. You grammarians don't get too excited. <laughs> we have, the, we have uh, a singular and a plural, which is the same you. Now, unless you speak the Texan dialect, which has all and all y'all. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we just have you no matter what the situation is. And though verse 51 says, and he said to him, singular, Jesus speaking to Nathaniel, the, the both, both occasions of you, I, I say to you, you will see heaven open, are plural. Which means that as Jesus is speaking to Nathaniel, he's expanding the scope of this promise to the rest of the disciples who no doubt are around him. So all of them would receive special revelation and be exposed to the work of God through Jesus. That is a promise that changes the trajectory of one's life. 
Though you and I have not had this kind of a personal face-to-face experience with Jesus, we do have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and we have His Word in our hands. So what a privilege is ours to, to know what God has revealed about Himself and what He's done in the world and what His purposes and plans are for the future. The Christian life begins with a life-changing experience with Christ. But then for the rest of our lives, we have the, the joy of knowing God forever. What a privilege we have. Did you notice, by the way, that at the end of that verse, verse 51, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man is actually Jesus' favorite name or title for himself in the book of John. It's that messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Nathaniel, no doubt, would have understood that reference and been confirmed in his declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Well, for declarations and four life-changing encounters. Take note of the fact that as examples of personal evangelism, Andrew, John the Baptist himself, Andrew and Philip did nothing but bring Andrew and uh, uh, Simon and Nathaniel to Jesus. And Jesus did the rest. Andrew and Peter became disciples of Jesus and eventually apostles. We're actually not sure about Nathaniel. The only other time he's mentioned in this gospel is at the end, after the resurrection of Jesus, when Peter and the other disciples are fishing, Nathaniel's with him, but he's never mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Some guess that perhaps Nathaniel is Bartholomew in the other gospels, who is one of the disciples. Bartholomew simply means son of Ptolemy, and so perhaps Nathaniel is the son of Ptolemy, but there's no way to know for sure. In one sense, at least for our purposes, it really doesn't matter if Nathaniel was one of the 12 disciples appointed by Jesus to become apostles or whether he just remained on that second level of disciples who followed Jesus throughout his ministry or even if he stopped following Christ. God's purposes for him may well have been different than they were for Simon and for Andrew and for Philip. In the same way, what happens to the people that we bring to Jesus is between them and the Lord, and you can't control that. You and I are not responsible for the souls of other people. You and I are simply responsible to bring them to Jesus. Whether we tell people about him ourselves, whether we invite them to see him in the scripture, whether we invite them to come to church or give them materials about Jesus, whatever method we use to to bring them to Jesus, we need to, to bring them to Jesus and let them encounter the living God in the person of Christ. Well, here we are at the end of John 1. Consider all of the titles that have been applied to Jesus so far. He is the Word. He is the light. He is the Christ. He is the only God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. And He is the Son of Man. Those are just the titles. Then there's 
what He does. We, we learn in this chapter that He made all things. He is the giver of life. He gives light to everyone. He gives the right to become children of God. He displays the glory of God. He Himself is full of grace and truth. He reveals the Father. He takes away the sin of the world. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who fulfills all of the law and the prophets. And He is the revealer of divine truth. Is it any wonder that an encounter with Jesus changes lives? Beloved church, there is nothing better that you and I can do than to bring people to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we think about this example set before us. We're encouraged by the, the men who brought people to Jesus. We're amazed by Jesus himself and the wonder of his person. Lord, help us to, to do these things, to bring people to Jesus, to speak of him, to proclaim him, that we might see the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ be brought into the lives of those who are lost in darkness. Use us. Use us this week. Use us this month. May we celebrate and rejoice in the days to come of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen.